Okay, class. Today we're gonna start with the basics. Hello and welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where New Life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. I'm Pastor Eric. Thank you guys for joining us. And today we have part six of our What is the Gospel series. This conversation was recorded a few weeks ago and was very sprawling and covered a lot of different topics. And so what I decided to do was break this conversation up into two parts to help give a logical break in some of the conversation. So this first part is part one of part six of what is the gospel where we discuss the gospel and specifically the political implications of the gospel. So there's a lot to unpack in this episode. You may need to listen to it a couple of times, but I hope you guys enjoy it. It was a really fun conversation to have and really quite enlightening for all three of us. So thank you guys for listening and let's get growing. Hello and welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast. This is Pastor Eric. Thank you guys uh, for joining us, for listening in today. Uh, As always during this session or during this series, I am joined by my good friends, Mr. Paul Wells. Howdy. And Mr. Daniel Hintz. Hello. And the reason that Paul said howdy is because he's from Kansas. The, no, that's it's, the it, there. it's because I'm a dork. That's that's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are going to um, continue on in our series talking about the gospel. We are reading through a book called Simply Good News by an author named M.T. Wright, and he's kind of our fourth conversation partner. We are now in episode six of this series, and we're going to con- just jump right in and continue on using his chapters as a way to frame our conversation and talk about the gospel from three different theological backgrounds and also personal backgrounds since Paul, Daniel, and I have three different experiences. We're serving in three different church traditions, and so we, we've had a very fulsome series of conversations so far, and so I'm excited to continue on. This chapter is right after we talked about, in, in chapter five, we talked about heaven and how N.T. Wright talks about what heaven is. We had a great conversation there, and then he moves on. This chapter is called Wrong Future, Wrong Present, where he talks about how this view of heaven might change the way that we enter interact with the world around us. So I'm going to turn it over to Paul, who's going to give us an overview of the chapter. Take it away, Paul. Yeah, so I have the incredibly simple task of summarizing a chapter which didn't cover any difficult topics at all. (laughs) So we, I, you know, I think N.T. Wright really gets out of a lot of the subtleties and a lot of the um, being very particular or making minor adjustments to terminology that he's been in in the first few chapters. And really starts throwing punches in this chapter. It's almost kind of like he's softening up with some jabs. And now he's just, he's going for the haymakers at this point. Um, But he really gave great insight into the tension um, Christians have with social progress. um, Mm. And how the gospel plays into that. So a real broad overview of the chapter is just, it's about how our view of the future impacts our view of the present. So chapter five talked about, you know, what heaven was. Um, and and uh, what that would look like. And chapter six really talks about the ramifications of having um, bad theology around around heaven or a bad bad um, view of what the future holds. Um, and, and he starts talking about um, that some of us um, uh, some of some of us have 
uh, some misviews we have of the future, such as thinking that the early Christians believed the world would come to an end, uh, and some of the rem- uh, one of the th- some of the theological outfall of that. Um, uh, but really, what he talks about in this chapter is balancing how the gospel is about saving souls. Is um, the gospel is not solely about saving souls. Um, we can't really make that the focus, and if that's what the church does, we're just kind of waiting for the bus for heaven. But that there's real work to be done, um, and he kind of talks about freeing slaves and helping the poor and, and reconciling um, you know, warring factions or warring factions and ethnic groups um, and, and reconciling nations. Um, and so we kind of have this tension between um, the saving souls. Uh, and, and that um, there is sin that we need, we need to address, um, but also that there is real kingdom work to be done uh, here in the world. Um, and so as Christians, we should be about justice, uh, and we should certainly be about making the world um, a better place, but we also need to be careful um, and not try and force God's return or Christ's final return through our own means. Um, and so N.T. Wright really kind of calls out both Christians on the on the political left and right, um, you know, and, and to Christians on the right, you know, he kind of is the typical uh, you need to be more compassionate and 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 have sympathy for the less fortunate. And then to the Christians on the left, he kind of says, you know, you need to, you need to stop trying to make God's kingdom your kingdom. Um, and essentially both groups kind of make the same mistake, thinking that. God's going to bring about his kingdom um, sort of vicariously through their their powers. Um, and he kind of turns it on its head and, and um, turns it really personally uh, for for us. And, and how do we live with this tension that there is actual work for us to do in the here and now to bring about justice, to bring about restoration, but ultimately... Um, we are waiting for Christ to come back to complete to complete that work. And so how should we view progress? And he kind of says that we should look at progress as a signpost of the coming glory, but not necessarily the glory in and of itself. And we should seek to make changes and real changes, um, even though they might be costly and sometimes they're a little sporadic. Um but we should avoid falling into sort of a, a fatalistic retreat where we're just sort of waiting for Jesus to come back and fix everything. But we should really set about a, a, a tiresome but very good work to change the world, um, to change ourselves individually, um, and, and, and to bring unity in the church. Now, lots of heavy stuff in this. And I don't know that that's a great summary of it, but man, there was so much in this chapter. Yeah, no, I think your your first kind of statement at the top, it was right that like he's he's really just been, yeah, you, you used a boxing metaphor, which I think was was helpful. You know, he, he's kind of dancing around, jabbing a little bit. Uh, you know, he's making some corrections and making some distinctions and precise definitions, and he's just like wearing you down. And then this chapter was just like one thing after the other, after the other, after the other, and he really just. It kind of felt like a scorched earth where he left, he left nobody, you know, no, nobody was righteous after this chapter Uh, really, really revealed just how damaging bad views of the end, you know, the future, you know, eschatology, bad views of the end times, bad views of 
the ultimate future, what they produce produce in us. Well, I, I would say he doesn't leave anybody righteous in Western Christianity. Like sure. he's he's pretty pointed in oh, yeah, you know yeah. the the dichotomies that he's drawing are mm-hmm. specifically yeah. applied to you know the the extremes of Western civilization and Western Christianity and kind of our version of like Paul you kind of said politicizing things into you know you've got your right wing Christians and your left wing Christians mm-hmm. and yeah. neither of them is really centered on the gospel as much as they've kind of taken their own version of things and, and kind of made that the main focus. Yeah, you know, I, th- I found in this chapter, uh, so I, you know, I, th- I think I've shared on this before that I'm sort of a recovering extreme right wing Christian, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's almost this false dichotomy that you have to pick one or the other. You have to identify with one of the two groups, and I was I was intimately familiar with how wrong the political left was for a long time. I say that in jest, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, I I spent a lot of time thinking about how wrong I thought they were about things. And then as I start to, started to examine my own views and say, okay, well, maybe I'm not as aligned with the gospel as I thought I was. There's almost this, there's this sense to be like, well, you kind of want to jump in on the other side, but then you're, okay, but that doesn't necessarily mean the things I thought were wrong are now right. Right. You know, it just means that I've got, you know, we made this argument a lot in the last election cycle, like uh, picking the lesser of two evils, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, and I think what N.T. Wright does is he does a very good job of explaining that tension um, and describing where it comes from, but then also helping point us in a positive direction. Right. Of of where where is the, where are the good things in each place? Where did we go wrong, and what can we do better? Yeah, I was I was reminded reading this chapter of um, it's a verse. I think it's from Galatians six of um, do not become weary of doing good for at the proper time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me kind of was the verse that summarized the major elements of this chapter was perseverance and persistence yeah you know he he says like the progress is at one point he says the progress is is possible but it's sporadic um you know it is possible to make progress and to to kind of bring the kingdom in in ways but it's not a consistent victory and there are times when it feels like we are just you know it's an exercise in futility um, right. But that does not give us the excuse to say, well, there's no point in doing anything because Jesus is just going to come and show up and make everything all right. It's like, right. yeah, he will do that, but we still have a responsibility to to begin preparing for that um, and preparing the world for that. I think he does a really good job at, at the top of this chapter. He does, a, he does a nice job introducing the tension that Jesus was both. And, and by extension, the, the early church, they were both radically separate from the power structures of the world, but also deeply concerned with the power structures of the world and mm-hmm. performing good for their community, for the polis, for the city. For their for their political reality, doing good within 
their reality. Uh, you know, and he talks about, he talks about um, some of what we what we taught what we think is the end times language, like stars falling from the sky, and this kind of business. You know, when when Jesus talks about um, within a generation, you'll see these things happen. You'll see the temple destroyed. You'll see you know all this kind of stuff. Um, we automatically go because we're trained to think and have these like uh, have these antennas for conspiracy theories end time kinds of things. We, we have these like antenna for them um, that we ignore what the old how the Old Testament uses that kind of language to talk about current political structures. So Jesus w- was talking about, when he was talking about things like um, the stars falling from the sky, when he was talking about the end times, it was not necessarily the end of all things, but he was talking about particularly the end of the power structures as we know them is coming, which I, which I agree with N.T. Wright. I think oftentimes with Jesus' language, when it comes to this kind of like eschatological end times language, a lot of that really does have to do more with Jerusalem um, and the power structures in Jerusalem than it does the end times the way that we think about the end times. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in the in the Old Testament imagination, the the world wasn't bifurcated the way that you know Enlightenment people think about it, where God's packed away upstairs and we're downstairs, mm-hmm. but they were kind of reflections of each other. And so we we hear things like in Deuteronomy where. Moses says that um, God uh, spread out or God created the nations according to the numbers of the sons of God. Well, for the Jews, the sons of God were they they kind of understood them as uh, the stars. That's that's God's space up there. And those are the spiritual beings that that reflect the earth. And so they actually had this understanding that there are spiritual spiritual beings working behind what we might call political powers and structures. And so, you know, when, when we read something like in Revelation about the stars falling, that's reference to Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter, I don't know, nine, something, nine, ten, somewhere in there. The back half of that book. <laughs> back half of that book where it gets really nuts. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's talking about the political powers, the, the kingdoms of the world falling. Um, and so to kind of like remove Jesus and kind of treat him as somebody who was like a hippie, who was like, I'm not going to be involved in any of this. That's not what he was doing at all. He was actually quite concerned with the power structures the way that they were and what was going to come of the power structures. So N.T. Wright does a good job kind of setting off from the beginning, uh, kind of taking away some of the myths of, of Jesus kind of being this like, you know, the sandal wearing hippie who was removed from all these things. No, he was actually intimately concerned with um, the power structures around him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and he does a good point of, of pointing out that, like, the problem with seeing, how, holding that false view that it's talking about the end of the world and all of those situations is, well, the world didn't end. And so yeah. clearly the early apostles, some of Jesus' teaching, that was mistaken or misinterpreted. So what we can do is then edit those parts out because they don't matter. Right. And then we can just get to the good advice, you know, the little yeah. the pithy sayings and the parables and just turn that into the gospel. Right. And, yeah. and that's cutting out a large, um, a large portion of what makes the gospel the gospel 
um, in terms of how it relates to the setting it was in and then the ways it relates to our context, our setting in, you know, the modern world. Um, because those political structures still exist. Not yeah. the same ones, but there are political structures that are yeah. vying for power right. and control. Right. And yeah. we have the perspective in America in the 21st century that this is, you know, God's chosen way of ordering, right. yeah. you know, the world. This yeah. is the perfect power structure. Right. Um, and it's like, well, it's, it's been around for less than 350 years. Right. And in the grand scheme of human history, that's nothing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know that that was a big change in my own um, my own reading of the Bible and and understanding was realizing, especially the Old Testament prophetic book of Daniel, chapter seven, um, in the back half of that book, um, where <laughs> there's this like cycle of beasts that come up out of the water, which represents chaos in the ancient Hebrew mind. Um, that there's actually like a cycle of powers that come and go and and the sons of god the you know um those who are given victory are not the same thing they they are not the beasts right they're kind of they are different from the beast um but are witnesses to the beast and are part of the system that's falling um and it kind of puts us into check that like oh yeah like the, our our particular like representative you know uh, republic that we have here um, is just part of that cycle, and I think it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think that it, that in theory that's a pretty nice way to rule. That's a good way to rule, um, but it is a part of the this like revolving door of power structures that will eventually fall um that kind of puts us into check a little bit changes the way that we we think about um how we engage in politics and how we how we participate as citizens it maybe puts us in the right frame of mind um mm -hmm. that we can uh yeah i don't know i don't know what do you guys think yeah you know um the, the term that i keep thinking of and, and maybe we've talked about this before in here but that sort of manifest destiny um you know where what was going to happen was inevitable and, and for the good of the whole world that's that's a butchering of what manifest destiny is but that you know sort of it was inevitable that that this was going to happen um right. and um and so therefore because it was inevitable it was whatever morally questionable things happened were not quite as bad as we think they should be um, and, uh, yeah, I think that, that for me, I don't have to agree, Eric, it was a turning point for me when I started thinking of, of, um, governments in the world, including the one which I am subject to as more along the lines of Babylon and less along the lines of Israel 2.0, um, which which yeah. the important thing to note here um, is that 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 doesn't necessarily mean and, and N.T. Wright does a good job of doing this, of not not taking that too far, yeah. because you can take that too far, like in the Anabaptist movement, which was kind of that second wave of, of the Reformation. Um, they were kind of working in that uh, radical Reformation during the same time um, as like uh, as Martin Luther and then later with John Calvin. 
the Anabaptists, which eventually became the Amish and the Mennonite, they kind of are like be separate from the power structures because all power structures are demonic. All power structures are inherently evil, um, which I think that you're right, Paul, that that the world governments, including our own, are more like Babylon. But God also told the Israelites when they went to Babylon to plant gardens, have children, and mm-hmm. work for the good of Babylon. And they actually participated in the system. Uh, you know, we see that. I, I just preached on um, Esther this weekend. You actually see the Jewish people participating in, by that time it was the Persian Empire, but they're participating in the kind of political life and taking positions of power within the empire, within within the empire, um, in order to bring about good. Um, so, so saying that, you know, I think that that it's correct in the from the biblical mindset to say that world governments are more like Babylon than they are Israel 2.0, um, but that also does not mean we should we separate. Yeah, we can't yeah. throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We we still have a call to be good citizens, um, to work for the good of our neighbor, um, and and that you know we can take those implications probably further than we should at this juncture. But but the the point is that there's a balance in in there, right? That it's mm-hmm. not just well, and you, know, you can't just go one whole way without losing yeah. some good things. All and right. that that balance or that that proper perspective comes from. You know, like we talked about a few weeks ago, the idea of using power as a tool for service, mm. right? That it is not about, oh, I need to, I need my political group and agenda to take control so that we can be in charge, so that we can make sure things go correctly here. Right. But, well, I need to use the power that I have to better the situation of those who are around me or under me or above me or, you know, whatever. Um, and that, again, the focus becomes how can I leverage this, you know, political system to help, to, to spread the gospel, to spread the kingdom of God, um, rather than to just perpetuate itself, which is what we see political structures and power structures do is they're designed to preserve themselves. And it sheds light on the, on sort of the extreme views that we see here in that one sense we want a great deal of individualistic control in that um, uh, I can impart better change in the world if the government stays out of my business and off my lawn. Right. Um, And then the flip side of that is um, the government can impart impart better change in the world if we give all the super moral really smart people all of the control mm-hmm. and there's a balance between those two right. things and both of those things um ultimately give control to the individual and in submission to the person um and their moral thought and what they think is best instead of surrendering that to christ the king right. And, and it's using his words and his gospel and his scripture for our own purposes rather than for what yeah. he intended them. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think what we're seeing in this in this chapter is that, man, he threads the needle really well. Um, you know, and maybe it's just because he's, you know, he's 
British. He's not American. So he's, you know, having maybe they're having different conversations, um, you know, but I can imagine some Americans reading this and just being like, this guy's a communist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and then the other the other side being the case, too, um, where the other side just be like, oh, well, this guy's just a he's a he's a fundamentalist. Right. They, I think mm-hmm. that you could see that. But he threads a needle really well of being like, no, we we are both. We Christians should be both radically moral in our in our decision making and also radically compassionate in our actions like there has to be a place to we're, we're going to find ourselves on the bad end of the stick uh politically most of the time from one side or the other because we're going to have we're going to have issues on both sides yeah which is where he kind of ends the chapter is by talking about like the gospel is a stumbling block right it's foolishness and weakness and you know that is a major part of the identity we tend to lose in you know the church in America today is it just gets so wrapped up in political identity a lot of times that it doesn't it's like oh it starts making sense because we take out all the parts that make me uncomfortable and it's like oh yeah of course this is the only way anyone can see this and aren't you foolish for thinking otherwise um, when the other side has done the exact same thing but with different parts highlighted yeah. And cut out. I thought that the um, his highlighting of the idea of progress and the problems yeah. inherent with that worldview were um, quite well put. Um, I, I enjoyed that section of the chapter probably more than anything else um, in the chapter. I mean, it was all good, but uh, I, the the idea that, as he says, the the eschatological snobbery of progress. Mm-hmm. That, like we have this privileged information that we know the direction that all of humanity is going right that we're on the quote unquote right side of history when it comes to it and that it just happens to be um, the idea of a uh, like a western civilization like a democratic democratic like liberal kind of um, agenda uh, happens to be like wow that's what all human you know progress yeah. has been leading to that Everything's point moving that and direction all, yeah right um and he's just like that is kind of absurd to yeah. to believe that yeah no and i and i thought about that too and what i what i kept thinking about what he in that section which is what i was going to point us to um was yeah in the 20th century there was a spread of this kind of like what are you know the kind of thought political thought that our nation is is founded on um this kind of like very like yeah you know that liberalism in the in the philosophical sense um not necessarily in our definition right. of right wing left wing right. but liberalism in the philosophical sense and this kind of democratic process that was spreading in the 20th century but also the 20th century was like the most violent century in history like you know what i mean so it was like yeah like i think that i think that's great like i mentioned before i think our system is is pretty good i think that it's and it's probably one of the better ones um mm-hmm. but at the same time there's also this rise of violence and death and destruction and war mm-hmm. and so you know correlation is not causation um but it, there's definitely a mixed bag right progress is 
that that at least shows us that progress is is kind of a fairy tale. Um, it's well, something it, that we that we want to believe in, but it's not yeah. it's not the truth. Well, it's it's a fairy tale when it comes to like um, like the political and kind of moral progress because he talks about like scientific progress yeah. is undeniable, right? Yeah. Like we have access to far better technology than at any point in history. That's a fact. Yeah. But to then work backwards and assume that therefore because our technology and our scientific achievements are better that we are also more moral and you know more you know intellectually advanced than anyone that came before is a is a leap that is probably going too far he he talks about like the idea of the theory of evolution kind of tying into that in terms Uh of as a what started out as kind of an attempt at a scientific framework got co-opted by the philosophical you know um, idea that well, if we adopt this model and use it to make moral uh, claims instead of scientific claims, right. we can explain away God. We don't need Him, and we can put all human history into human control. That right. you know, this was all humans evolving to become the next better version of themselves. We're marching forward to be more adaptable and yeah. more survivable, and therefore, it's always better when there is a change because it means we are getting rid of the previous version and moving into a new, better, more adaptable version. Of With humanity. blonde hair and blue eyes. Ooh, and high oh, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's the yeah, that's point right. he's that's making. That's the next logical step. I definitely think that that was, that was really, really pointed how he talked about that, that Darwin's theory of evolution, yeah, it, was co- it really was co-opted by the kind of hot philosophical thinking of the day. Because... Darwin's theory, you know, the the way that we talk about the scientific process, it doesn't actually the the way that the scientific process works, the way that we use it now, it's it's not supposed to prove more than it proves, right? Like it's supposed to be observable and repeatable, and so he you know helped the scientific world go a long way in understanding how the world operates, but then when it gets you know, like you said, Daniel gets co-opted by philosophy and then says, well, that change is actually progress. It's not just change. It's Mm -hmm. actually, we are moving forward to something better, which is not necessarily true in Darwin's theory, um, that it's moving into something better. Um, that that's where it gets really dangerous. And that's kind of where, you know, how we've ended up with the conversation now, um, with a lot of those, uh, with a lot of the, the kind of the conversation between faith and science is that science has co-opted, the scientific community has co-opted that philosophy of progress, um, which which has not helped faith or science. <laughs> it hasn't helped yeah. either of them. You know, I, I would almost make uh, a little bit of a different, I don't know, a little bit of different argument or different perspective on it in that um, I think the philosophical community was looking for a mechanism for the enlightenment. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Mm -hmm. And Darwin on the shoulders of great scientists who were familiar with the gospel, who looked at, you know, didn't see that dualistic nature like the enlightenment saw, um, knew that there had to be order and structure in the universe and I think Darwin, in an attempt to provide a naturalistic 
explanation for the order that we see. I don't know that Darwin was setting out to 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 be the champion of of atheism. Um, uh, what he did is he provided a mechanism for naturalism to take off. You know, he, he was the catalyst in that they were looking for something to explain away God. And Darwin provided that. And if anything, I think really moralistically, we could make a case that um, things have gone pretty pretty far downhill since Darwin. Yeah, introduced. Right. If you look at the now technology and just pure science, yeah, sure, that, that has continued to advance. But from a philosophical and a moral perspective, I think you make the case that we've actually we've made um, less progress. And that highlights that sort of snobbery um, that it talked about before, uh, where so before people were, um, you know, killing and enslaving nations uh, for power and money and cedars to make their palaces bigger to now. No, it was it is our duty and our purpose in the world to make things better. And because of that, I need to exterminate this people group. Or I need to force utopia, um, and it, and we gave ourselves a moral reason to do something. So. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that the the myth of progress, you know, I guess he talks about it as as N.T. Wright talks about it. That has become one of the guiding myths. You know, the the way that we, you know, he talks about the myth is not just a fake story, but it's a framework by which we we look at the world. Um, but the story, the framework, the, the myth that that both Christians and uh, kind of secular humanists uh, take is this myth of progress, um, which is why I think that not only which is why I think that kind of our cultural and social and political climate is the way that it is, is because you have two groups both kind of championing progress. And that progress is leading in two different directions. Um, but I think you're right, Paul, that like there you can kind of like I mentioned, the 20th century was the most violent and deadly. More people died in the 20th century than any other century we can than before. Right. Then there was like more people died in the 20th century than lived 2000 years ago, 4000 years ago. There was so many people died violently and and it's it's hard for us to I, it's hard for me to look at that and be like oh yeah we progressed <laughs> yeah like you know there well, were some and, good things that happened but we the it's just a it's not true well and and we use you know so we we say one of the arguments that you'll hear um people make is um well yeah so there are definitely problems but the thing that's so good about it is it's a self-correcting system Right. So look, like we started off with slavery, but now look, we fixed that. It correct. Mm-hmm. It's self-corrected. We've got mm-hmm. we've got some racism, but hey, we're self-correcting it. And also, and also, I would point out that the corrections largely came from influence of Christian leaders. Right. The system did not correct itself. <laughs> the system is not what corrected itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, because the system wants to perpetuate itself. 